Too many alerts and not enough action? It's time to get SaltStack. SaltStack is an intelligent IT automation platform that detects security issues in critical business systems and then actually fixes them. With SaltStack, security and IT teams work together to define custom security policies with certified checks for CIS, DISIS STIGs, and more. You can scan systems for millions of compliance checks in minutes. Remediate compliance and vulnerability issues with powerful automation all in a single platform. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash SaltStack to learn more. Sysdig is the first cloud-native visibility and security platform that eliminates the need for standalone tools like container security and monitoring. Using Sysdig's unique data approach, enterprises can solve a variety of visibility and security issues at massive enterprise scale for multi- and hybrid cloud environments. Sysdig will enable your organization to scan and block vulnerable images and enforce best practices pre-production, block threats, enforce compliance, and monitor application performance, proactively alert on incidents, reduce MTTR with forensics, and capture detailed audit records, all from a single unified platform. Accelerate your transition to containers and then have confidence in your ongoing operations using Sysdig. To learn more, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Sysdig. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman and John Kinsella. We're currently running two surveys, five stages of automation maturity and our annual listener feedback survey. Please visit securityweekly.com, click the survey tab and select five stages of automation maturity or 2009 listener survey to submit your responses. The new Security Weekly website is officially live Visit securityweekly.com to check out all of our new sorting and filtering functionality. Please let us know if you're finding any issues or have any feedback by sending to website at securityweekly.net. Well, uh, Matt, John, uh, news this week, there was coincidentally a great uh, blog post that was calling out or discussing um, CVEs and the role of CVEs in vulnerabilities and tooling, um, which I thought was a great um, continuation from a discussion we had last week. In this case, um, it was a developer who found essentially the, the billion laughs attack inside a YAML configurations for Kubernetes. So the billion laughs attack is related, it, it has a history in XML, which is essentially a way to take entity expansion and create exponential growth in it. So you essentially say, here's an entity that has a few characters in it, and here's another entity that's actually populated that refers to the previous entity, and so it just kind of builds and builds and builds by this expansion, so you're substituting like one character now gets substituted for 10 characters. Those 10 characters now get substituted for 100, 1,000, and so on. Um, and so this was, I, I wanted to highlight this not so much because this is a uh, earth shattering type of vulnerability or suddenly a lots of um, you know, Kubernetes clusters are going to start going to go down from it, but for the reasons that it was interesting that an XML problem you know, um, shows up in YAML. Um, so all these types of markup languages, when they have entity expansion or su variable substitution for that matter, um, are all able to reinvent vulnerabilities we've seen before. But um, the other thing that was really neat, uh, just uh, one, one of the comments, um, I'll, ju I'll just read it from the, the article, is that the, the reporter suggested raising a CVE for the issue to help awareness for downstream projects. Um, and felt that the, basically saying that as well, the problems with CVE is that they're used by most software tools as flags to basically say this library needs to be upgraded. 
And so the YAML and Kubernetes decided, yeah, there's a CVE for this. But when they went to Go, the Go security team said, we're just doing the right thing in terms of YAML parsing. This isn't a CVE worthy type of vulnerability for us. So the author's kind of pointing out that distinction that people may know they need to upgrade their Kubernetes because of this, but they may not realize that Go has this you know, lurking, call it a problem or a weakness within it. So that's the, the more of the, the, the meta conversation I thought that was pretty interesting about this. Yeah, the other thing about this is understanding those dependency libraries under the covers that allow some of these CVEs to kind of resurface themselves. Um, you know, John and I did a lot of work uh, on this when we were at Layered Insight. You know, understanding those binaries and library dependencies are an important, important thing to understand where vulnerabilities potentially are, right? We would talk about PHP all the time because there, there's so many underlying libraries that are vulnerable that are now getting exposed because of these dependencies. Um, and yeah, certain systems flag them, certain systems don't, but it's important from a software inventory perspective, I think, to really understand where these dependencies are because when you find a vulnerability in that dependency, it can be abstracted out a, a number of layers and it may not get caught in certain places like the Go YAML library, for example. Yeah, I think one of the other interesting um, <clears throat> aspects of Go as a language is that it's all statically compiled. So you do have to have a really good diligence in the terms of understanding the manifest at build time of what's going into it, because it becomes, due to being statically compiled or statically linked, it, it's a lot harder to inspect and figure out in this binary blob after the fact what versions, what libraries have been pulled into it. And do I have a vulnerability or not? So it's one of these, um, it, it's not an impossible problem by any means. It just, it's just shifting the burden to say, at compiled time, let's have this nice strong manifest so we know what went into it, our build of, build of materials, so to speak, rather than trying to figure it out after the fact. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one. Um... And I, I'd actually missed that part about the Go thing when I when this when I read this earlier, um, so I was just going back looking at that again. So from a an open source security team person's point of view, you know, when I've been in this role for different products in the past projects, um, one of the things you, it's always in your mind is you want to get you want to be able to communicate out to the the end user and let them know that there's something there they need to be aware of. But at the same time, you're trying to, you know, make sure you don't show up too often if someone does a, a CVE search for a product compared to, excuse me, a mm -hmm. project compared to another project. Mm -hmm. So I think that comes into it a little bit. I don't know if that was on the Go guy's <clears throat> mind, um, but just trying to give a sense from the, the other side of the fence. Yeah, yeah, it was in, really interesting. And it, it's worth a read through and just kind of, and as well as kind of an exercise within your own like organizations. It's like, that's how you have a conversation with the security team and product owners. Cause there's a little bit of, uh, I, I won't say battle, but there's a little bit of a discussion to figure out from what perspective are we coming at this? And in this write up, it was nicely put to say, I can, see, you know, the, the author speaking, I can see both angles of this. So it's not a security person coming in with a blunt club saying, make the CVE exist, otherwise everyone else will fail. It's having the cognizance to think about, well, what's, 
what's the exposure here? Where should, what's the difference between awareness and where things absolutely need to be fixed and how we can detect it? So kind of a, kind of a good way to think about a security conversation, I think. Yeah. And I think it's a good conversation to have to think about where in the CICD pipeline you actually integrate security checks, right? To your point, this is a compiled uh, library. So you have to think a little further back here to say what's, what are libraries are coming in to statically compile this, um, which may be at a different step than most people would look at where these vulnerabilities exist. They may wait until it's further down and it's embedded in a container and then looking at the dependencies and binaries in the container. And by then it's too late, right? So I think this is a really good example of where are the appropriate checks from a security perspective in your overall CI/CD pipeline to catch the stuff at the right time. Yeah, I think the only thing I can add to what you were just saying is that making sure those the the results of those checks or or that the information about the build process is visible to the security tools so that you're not just focusing on here is the the binary after it's been built, but also the manifest of what goes into it, um, even git commits, for example, things like that. So it's having that visibility as well. One of the cool things about this blog post uh last one um rory is also one of the guys that works on one of the people excuse me that works on both the cis benchmark for kubernetes as well as docker so sort of cool to see someone not just working on the compliance side of things and setting up the rules but actually helping to find some of these issues so um, lots of good stuff from him yeah absolutely a, a good combination of compliance and security working well together and doing doing the right thing um, in the spirit of so what, where the, that billion laughs attack is actually pretty old and it popped up in YAML, um, I have another vulnerability that was in um, Wi-Fi devices, the RTL, uh, Realtek chips, um, that's been around essentially for four years um, before it was at least openly d discovered and um, disclosed. And what's interesting about it, again, is that this one perhaps has a bit more impact than the, than the previous bug did. Um, but it also, again, falls into a very simple category of um, a particular type of packet, in this case, a notice of absence packet, which was designed for IoT devices to basically say, hey, you know what, I can actually slow down on how much broadcasting I'm doing and how much traffic I'm sending out over the over Wi-Fi so that I can save battery power because these are, you know, small, um, small footprints, small batteries. But what happened is that it basically failed to check the length of these packets, which could lead to a buffer overflow, which could lead to a data corruption, and then potentially even um, remote command execution against these devices. So it bundles all your favorite vulnerabilities into <clears throat> one. The only thing it missed was a directory traversal. So hopefully somebody has an IoT <laughs> device with a file server, and then I would be exceedingly happy with this one. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to go check the NASA's. I might have to start scanning. And uh, there were a couple of things that, that I thought was was interesting from this. One, of course, is that here's a bug once again that that has been around for four years in open source tooling. <clears throat> so one of the the questions, the challenging questions, we can ask ourselves as the security community, if we have, especially within you know. Linux drivers, open source, lots of people are looking at them. How does a bug like this persist for so long? You know, we, it's been missed by manual reviews. It's been missed by source analyzers. It's even, you know, we can make an argument um, 
that fuzzing should be pretty good here because, and we've talked about the benefits of fuzzing um, over the last couple episodes. One of the aspects here, though, that I have more of a question about that I don't know that fuzzing in this case would have worked because it actually requires a specific device driver to be mm -hmm. loaded. So it's yeah. one of those cases that if you're not emulating like an OpenWRT device or, you know, some other some other wireless network that's using this particular one, you could fuzz all you want and you would never have touched this code path. Yeah, because it's um, driver. I think it's it, uh, my my joke is the bug bounty wasn't high enough for this one. Yeah. Yep. Sounds absolutely. Like yeah, but at the same time, it sounds like that should have a pretty good bounty on it if it's this big of a vulnerability, right? It's on the, the fuzzing thing. I mean, you can't do fuzzing, just, you know, cover your face and click go, and you can't do a blind fuzz, <laughs> right? You have to have some sort of right. sense of what you're targeting. So um, I'll, I'll buy that to a degree, but still, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, maybe it's this, always a little... Yeah, maybe the driver wasn't loaded or wasn't being used and nobody tested that scenario. I don't know. It, it's interesting, though. Yeah. It's interesting. And there now there's going to be because of this uh, and especially for being four years old, there's going to be a lot of just small IoT devices that that once again are um, vulnerable to yet another exploit. And uh, who knows if they can even be upgraded, let alone whether they ever will. Right. And, and I think the patch is still in <clears throat> review and revision. I don't even think it's released yet. Right. Based on the article. Yeah, yeah. Based on the article, I think it's still yeah, not quite, not quite even ready for for release. You're right. Yeah, but so, I don't know. Maybe you guys saw something in here. Is is RTL being used in IoT? I thought that's an older chipset too. Not older chipset. I most, yeah. but yeah. <clears throat> I know it's used a lot on the like the open WRT, a lot of like open um, routers, things like that. Yeah. So this possibly will hit more of the the home environment user rather than industrial or enterprise. Um, but that still means that somebody's going to feel a little bit of pain and have to spend some time updating their devices. Yeah, because most of the newer IoT stuff is using a lot of ARM processor stuff, so probably yeah. not vulnerable there. But it would be more of the Soho stuff and some of the other things that maybe are a little older that we're using um, that chipset. That's okay. Nobody cares about those guys anyway, so not willing to pay for security. <laughs> That's a joke for people, by the way. <laughs> One we toss around often, by the way. <clears throat> Send the email to John at security. <laughs> we'll let you off the hook for that one, Matt. That's for sure. Well, speaking of definitely people that, that do care for sure, this isn't a joke. It, it Chrome and Chromium browser. Um, <clears throat> I pulled out another article about recent improvements they're, done, they're doing in site isolation. Mm -hmm. And um, site isolation is something that is very much um, on my mind. I, I like it because I used to play with how to run headless browsers to scan websites. And um, in this case, um, the, the Google team, um, talking about they're talking about how they're taking the rendering engine Blink that's inside um, Chrome and saying that we know rendering engines are brittle because, for one, they have to deal with JavaScript. And um, I'll, I'll toss it over to you, John. You can c continue to, to collect all of the, 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 the listener email about all the fun things we can say about how well-written uh, and well-designed JavaScript is a language. But with that said, it has to deal with JavaScript, has to deal with all kinds of weird HTML, corner cases of HTML, and bugs are just going to happen. So what they're trying to do is, well, actually what they're succeeding to do is saying, we're going to really isolate on the process level what this renderer does. So when something bad happens, 
we're not actually going to bleed over and have access in memory to all of these other cookies or all these other uh, stored passwords that are in memory, um, other network data that could be used to go after um, uh, side channel types of attacks. So it, it's a really great read that talks a lot about how to design a system to be resilient. And in this case, we're talking about a very complex web browser, but a lot of these principles could be applied to that discussion we were having with Doug just now about how do you have isolated containers that are more resistant so this one particular container being compromised doesn't expose the secrets that you're using for your unrelated databases, these types of things. And if you don't give up root, it's a lot easier to do that. Oh, sorry, and, did I say that again? <laughs> you've got in both segments now, so you're done. So that's perfect. But I, I think this is a great announcement, right? In that for all the things I complain about Chrome for, right? Which is, it's a memory hog, it's a CPU hog. I, I mean, I have no less than 20 tabs open on my browser. But by doing this right, what you're what you're mitigating is cross-tab um, um, attacks, which by isolating each of these tabs as its own process, which it does, and now protecting each of those processes so that they cannot uh, corrupt another process is actually a really, really good thing. Um, so we just have to throw more CPU and memory into our machines to run and, and get all these benefits, which is kind of the downside in some respects. But it does, um, I think, do a really good job of isolating some of the potential attacks across these different browser tabs, which is a really, really good thing. The other choice is we can always just go back to the days of GeoCities and like, you know, 1280 by 800 pixels in small images. And that'll save us a lot of memory. So and we can know, go back saying. to what was it, 640 by 480 and do that too. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the era of the blink tag too, which is, which also is, is the nod from uh, the, the, the rendering engine um, blink. So um, a little, little bit of uh, history for you. Still around, still as um, um, entertaining, we'll say, to try to use a neutral term as ever. But yeah, so th so there's the site isolation uh, story of the day. It's, it's got some great, um, and within the blog, I'd also say it's got some great links into additional good technical resources that are just, if you're interested in web application security, um, it, it's just a lot of really good um, fundamental knowledge that would be good to collect, good to read about. Mm -hmm. Switching um, from the browser back over to the complexity of the, the AWS, for example. Um, uh, Salesforce released a tool called Policy Sentry. And it's basically, as they describe it, a IAM least privileged policy generator, auditor, and analysis database. So they also have a really good fact that explains how this compares to other tools, um, like Aardvark and RepoKid from uh, Netflix, as well as some of what AWS tools provides um, themselves. And I think I, want, I wanted to highlight it just so we can share that here's a, yet another one of the um, large enterprises running into problems. And what they're focusing on is they're saying that there's a lot of other tools out there that help peel back privileges when they detect that they haven't been used in a long time. But there aren't as many tools and as many easy ways to basically say from the beginning, here's a service that has these handful of identities. It needs to interact with these handful of resources. What is the least privileged policy I can create to make this work that doesn't actually have to involve a wildcard to just make it work? 
So thought it was a pretty cool tool. Yeah, I mean, identity is a big part <clears throat> of the triad, you know, app user data. Um, and where we're going to see issues is continuing to give up credentials with too many privileges. Uh, any better way to manage this, I think, is a win across the board. Um, what I'm curious, which I couldn't figure out from this because it says it's still uh, the wiki documentation is still a work in progress, is how does this integrate with some of the other tools that are out there? Does yeah. it and will it help me right. manage these very hybridized environments or is it very specific to uh, just certain credentials and identity? So th that's the only piece I couldn't figure out, Mike. But uh, improvement here is going to help, I think, all of us in the space because we're going to see a credential bloat because now we have service accounts and, and all these things communicating. If we, if, if we can truly find a way to lock these things down, provide least privilege, it reduces the attack surface, which is a great thing. I just don't know how well it integrates with all the other tools it, it compared itself to because look, no organization is going to have one place probably for all their credentials unless this can integrate with all those other sources. Yeah. And that, that's a, go ahead. I was going to say, we were just working with a customer last week who, um, you know, it's A, as, as Matt was saying, you first need the level of maturity to understand you don't just need an account, but you need to make those, you know, minimize those uh, um, uh, permissions as much as possible. But so we had one of those who wanted to go, they wanted to sort of review and double check and make sure that what they were doing for a particular cloud service was as minimal as possible. They were asking me, well, how do we do this? And, you know, the best answer I could come up with off the top of my head was, well, <laughs> try. Um, and that <laughs> becomes a, a slow process, right? You know, it's um, like a lot of these other technologies out there. How do you how do you audit? How do you actually make sure that you're using minimal uh, services or minimal um, exposure? So it's it's sort of good to see any of these tools come along. And, and, and yeah, just to repeat what you guys were saying, um, an open source project that actually put something on there saying, here's how we compete, here's how we compared to other products uh, is a wonderful thing, right? Because that allows uh, people to understand that quicker when they come to the site and try to figure out what is this thing or what's going on here. Oh, it's like Netflix's X, but a little different. Okay, cool, I get it, so. Yeah, I mean, um, we have this challenge internally, guys, right? You know, as Paul and I have talked about, where do we keep all of our credentials, right? Mm -hmm. You don't wanna keep them in the code, do you, do you create your own vault? Do you use somebody else's service? Do you use Policy Sentry to do it? Again, this is a very complex problem uh, with modern applications. And so any tooling that we can do to improve this, one from a discovery and, and an audit perspective is fantastic, but we have to realize that we're gonna have stuff in a lot of different places and we're just gonna need something that integrates with all these different um, other places where credentials might be stored to really do a holistic job. Otherwise we're gonna miss something and that's where we're gonna get the attack. And I think, um, yeah, I just want to hi yeah, highlight this because I think what we'll see here is it's nice that this was not a project that, yeah, this is just like Project X. We just re-implemented it in a different language. It's actually pointing out, like John was alluding to, here's how we compare. Um, and hopefully what we see is not just that, more so that Salesforce, example, for example, releasing this and saying, we see this as a big problem. We're pretty sure we're not alone here. And hopefully the cloud service providers will actually dive in to figure out how to make this experience a lot easier, uh, both from an integration, as your point you were making, Matt, so that we can actually query this through APIs, audit it through APIs, as well as from a user experience perspective, 
just be able to look at, uh, get to that drag and drop, if you will, of here is what, here is who, what service I want to access, what resource, make it happen, make it so for you Star Trek fans and um, do it with least privilege. Yeah. And I think possibly then at the larger scale, then about we could shift into the other article about uh, OpenShift uh, 4.2 about managing essentially, you know, at a much larger scale. So we're moving beyond just IAM here um, with what. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this is there's a lot of people out there using OpenShift to deploy their, their pods in their container environment. Just thought it was interesting to see some of the improvements in 4.2. Right. Some more, um, not only more visibility at the web console, like the relationship we were talking about this last segment, understand the relationship of what containers are running on which pods and making that visible to the developers and the security folks. Right. So some improvements there in their web console um, to, to make that a little easier to see for deployments. You've got um, some new command line interfaces to simplify deployments. Uh, integrations with uh, Azure, uh, DevOps, and, and different things, right? I mean, what we're seeing is a maturity in the container platforms, OpenShift being one of the big ones out there, Docker probably the other big one that, that most people are familiar with. But what we're seeing is improvements to bring more of that visibility because these environments are really complex. And anything we can do to make it easier for people to understand what's being deployed where, understand relationships, is a good starting point for us to get a better handle around security. And so some really nice improvements in um, the, the new OpenShift release here. Yeah, it looks like there's some great stuff in here. What just, uh, I'm scrolling through, um, I've looked at this page twice and every time I look at it, I see more stuff, but uh, the topology stuff looks great. What just caught my eye is they're doing a tech preview of um, serverless built into OpenShift. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, that's really interesting, right? So it's one of the questions I keep asking people is, how much are you actually using serverless? And I'm hearing a growing uh, um, number of people, especially against off those who are um, really into the um, really higher up in the maturity level that you know understand, hey, you know, it's if I don't have to run containers or virtual machines or all these type of things, um, that's a wonderful thing. So interesting to see that in here. Um, that's going to be interesting in 2020. Yeah, we were talking with Doug after the segment about functions, right? Um, mm. One of the use cases in, in, in a serverless environment, things that we've been looking at internally, right, is we don't need a container running all the time to do publishing, for example, in our environment. Publishing's done when a segment's done, right? We, we record these sessions, uh, guys edit them, and then we publish. But once publishing's done, we don't need that container hanging around waiting to publish to the next thing, right? So serverless and functions are a really good way for us to potentially offload what's in our container environment and, and leverage these. Now you have OpenShift supporting more of these type of deployment mechanisms. That's great because I think people, as they start to realize the use cases for serverless, you're going to see more adoption of these types of serverless um, environments and functions being used and the ability to... Uh, deploy them quickly and easily, I think, is going to be the next fun little challenge. And OpenShift's already starting to make moves there, which is which is a good thing. Yeah. It looks like they're also making it easier to um, run this on your laptop to get a taste. Uh, that's, uh, in the past, has been one of the bigger problems with OpenShift is how do you get this beast going? Um, so that's something else to play with in there. It really gets a really small paragraph on that page for people looking at it, but the Red Hat code deploy. 
Um, I think I had a tab open for it last week. Yeah. So, how, how many customers in your past did you have to wait for them to get the OpenShift environment up and running before we could even months. test what we were doing? Yeah, months and months, literally. Yeah. So, um, any improvement here is is a really wonderful thing. There you go. Another use for all that disk space and uh, memory <laughs> for your laptop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Close a couple tabs, open a couple OpenShift. Awesome. So I think that that leads us into um, our last article of the week about um, security's role in DevOps. And, you know, this is kind of an ongoing theme. One of the the points I really liked about this that stood out to me that I would highlight the most is one of the recommendations is write tests. And um, I'd possibly cheat and generalize this as well to write code. But yeah, if security isn't participating in actually like writing tests for your um, YAML files to see how you know how how well configured are they, or are there um, anti patterns within them, or you know call them code smells um, that probably look a little bit uh, wonky that maybe somebody human should go look at, um, or you know tests to make sure that you're enforcing least privilege. That is a great way to build credibility between the for the security team with your DevOps team and actually having empathy and saying, yep, we, we, we are not the experts perhaps in software architecture or you know, writing code on a daily basis, but look, we can write code that is in our subject matter um, expertise for security areas. So there's a whole, there's a, there's a handful of other um, responsibilities that this article calls out, but I really wanted to um, highlight that one because I think that's kind of a new thing um, that speaks to the DevOps relationship. Yeah, so this post was written by Securosis, probably a combination of Rich and Mike, um, probably heavily on Rich just because of his, his web back, uh, background. I don't know exactly who wrote it, but it, to me, the starting point is your security program is inadequate if it simply says to encrypt data or install a WAF, right? So that's the starting point to me is part of this discussion. Um, mm-hmm. But it talks about how to start to build credibility how to help people prioritize what's important and what's not important. I mean, these are all the things we're going to have to do as security professionals if we really want this concept of DevSecOps. We cannot sit on the sidelines dictating things like encrypt data, install a WAF, do this, do that. You really have to work with the development teams to understand why are certain things important, how do we best integrate security into the CICD pipeline, then we'll get closer to this concept of DevSecOps, right? Um, so there's a lot of great points in this article for anybody who's trying to figure out security's role in the overall development process. And, and some of the tips and tricks that are in here, I think will help have those conversations because it really starts with a discussion. It means we've got to get out of our comfort zone and go talk to the development teams, understand what they're doing. And then figure out, okay, well, how do we educate them on what's important? How do we integrate those things? How do we do it in a seamless way so that we can get security embedded into that process? And, and this gives you some really good pointers. Yeah, and part of that discussion, as you were just describing, is helping the DevOps teams understand threats. There, there's a great sentence in here that's dis- that you know describing if there's cases where code exploitation cannot actually harm the business, do nothing might just be the right answer. Um, I might quibble with that and, and rather than say do nothing at all, I might say do something but with a much lower priority. But that's a really smart way to approach that and say, hey, security, just this is not binary in the sense that a CVE exists, therefore it must be patched. Mm-hmm. 
how what does it actually mean for the business as well as what does that mean have you taken in consideration other controls other mitigating factors you know lots of applications uh, hopefully have something like site isolation where the presence of one bug doesn't completely knock over the entire browser and expose every single um, cookie or secret that's stored in memory that it, it actually can sandbox it and minimize it so that's the type of conversation and discussion to have uh, between security and devops team yeah even in our last conversation right is you can induce, introduce a bug or a CVE, but if you've got the right protection mechanism, like in the case of the WAF, that's already blocking those, the introduction of that CVE doesn't necessarily mean that it's a critical CVE that has to be fixed right now because there's a compensating or mitigating control in place. Again, we go back to understanding the risk associated with these vulnerabilities um, and then saying, well, because we have these other things in place, that's not a critical thing we need to fix. We should probably fix it, but it can be lower on the priority stack than maybe some of these other things that we need to do. And that's a conversation that security has to have with the development teams. And that's, I think, where a lot of the conversations aren't currently happening. To, to take a step back on that one, what I see sometimes is, and actually had, a, 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 I spent a lot of time with customers last week. So another one is actually griping about security people who don't actually understand coding. Um, but what I was gonna say is taking a step back, sometimes you will find compliance people who don't either have operational background or a coding background or really anything, right? They, they got interested in security, their entry point was compliance. Um, and, and the problem here is when those people are earlier in that career, they see, you know, pick your compliance uh, reg set, say CIS, you know, you know, certain section says you must do this. And they see that and like, oh, well, that has to be done that way because it says there. And it's the same thing with the CVEs, right? There's a, there's a CVE here, it has to be patched. Well, is it info or is it critical? Or when, when is that which, it's, when is it at which point on there? You look at the CVSS score on the vectors. And it really, it comes down to understanding, you know, this is, there's a lot of shades of gray in here. Um, and for a practitioner to understand those shades of gray and be able to work and communicate with those back to the developer, um, I think that's um, an important thing to call out. Absolutely. Um, like I said, it's, it's back to a risk-based approach in a lot of respects, mm -hmm. John, right? Is you have to understand, is it a critical vulnerability on a critical component that is going to impact the business. And if it is, that's a higher priority. If it's not, it doesn't have to be the most critical. Even though maybe the CVSS um, the vectors say it is, it it may it still may not be right. And and that takes an understanding of not only the code, but what that code's doing, what part of the business it's supporting, and, and that's a bigger conversation that um, is not as easily had. Uh, especially from a compliance angle only, because a lot of the compliance folks, as you said, you know, they might have come in from the IT audit side, right? So they're they're out auditing against a checklist, not necessarily un understanding all those other dependencies that that need to be as part of that risk based model. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, I think that's great to call out the, um, the the shades of gray in there, and I think at this point now we're going to have to fade to gray. Um, for all of you new wave fans, go check that song out. And uh, we'll have to wrap it up this week. So thank you, Matt. Thank you, John, for joining us. And thank everyone else. We'll see you next week on Application Security Weekly.